Section 14 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Chris Turtle. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 4, Chapter 11. The narrow escape of Molly Seagrim, with some observations for which we have been forced to dive pretty deep into nature. Tom Jones had ridden one of Mr. Weston's horses that morning in the chase, so that having no horse of his own in the squire's stable, he was obliged to go home on foot. This he did so expeditiously that he ran upwards of three miles within the half-hour. Just as he arrived at Mr. Allworthy's outward gate, he met the constable and company with Molly in their possession, whom they were conducting to that house where the inferior sort of people may learn one good lesson, viz. respect and deference to their superiors, since it must show them the wide distinction fortune intends between those persons who are to be corrected for their faults, and those who are not, which lesson if they do not learn, I am afraid they very rarely learn any other good lesson, or improve their morals at the house of correction. A lawyer may perhaps think Mr. Allworthy exceeded his authority a little in this instance, and, to say the truth, I question, as here was no regular information before him, whether his conduct was strictly regular. However, as his intention was truly upright, he ought to be excused in foro conscientiae, since so many arbitrary acts are daily committed by magistrates who have not this excuse to plead for themselves. Tom was no sooner informed by the constable whither they were proceeding, indeed he pretty well guessed it of himself, then he caught Molly in his arms, and embracing her tenderly before them all, swore he would murder the first man who offered to lay hold of her. He bid her dry her eyes and be comforted, for, wherever she went, he would accompany her. Then, turning to the constable, who stood trembling with his hat off, he desired him, in a very mild voice, to return with him for a moment only to his father, for so he now called Allworthy, for he durst, he said, be assured, that when he had alleged what he had to say in her favour, the girl would be discharged. The constable, who I make no doubt would have surrendered his prisoner had Tom demanded her, very readily consented to this request. So back they all went into Mr. Allworthy's hall, where Tom desired them to stay till his return, and then went himself in pursuit of the good man. As soon as he was found, Tom threw himself at his feet, and having begged a patient hearing, confessed himself to be the father of the child of which Molly was then big. He entreated him to have compassion on the poor girl, and to consider, if there was any guilt in the case, it lay principally at his door. "'If there is any guilt in the case,' answered Allworthy warmly, "'are you then so profligate and abandoned a libertine to doubt whether the breaking the laws of God and man, the corrupting and ruining a poor girl, be guilt? I own, indeed, it doth lie principally upon you, and so heavy it is that you ought to expect it should crush you.' "'Whatever may be my fate?' says Tom, let me succeed in my intercessions for the poor girl. I confess I have corrupted her, but whether she should be ruined depends on you. For heaven's sake, sir, revoke your warrant, and do not send her to a place which must unavoidably prove her destruction. Allworthy bid him immediately call a servant. Tom answered there was no occasion, for he had luckily met them at the gate, and relying upon his goodness, had brought them all back into his hall, where they now waited his final resolution which upon his knees he besought him might be in favour of the girl, that she might be permitted to go home to her parents, and not be exposed to a greater degree of shame and scorn than must necessarily fall upon her. "'I know,' said he, 
that is too much. I know I am the wicked occasion of it. I will endeavour to make amends, if possible, and if you, you shall have hereafter the goodness to forgive me, I hope I shall deserve it. Allworthy hesitated some time, and at last said, Well, I will discharge my mitmus. You may send the constable to me. He was instantly called, discharged, and so was the girl. It will be believed that Mr. Allworthy failed not to read Tom a very severe lecture on this occasion, but it is unnecessary to insert it here, as we have faithfully transcribed what he said to Jenny Jones in the first book, most of which may be applied to the men, equally with the women. So sensible an effect had these reproofs on the young man, who was no hardened sinner, that he retired to his own room, where he passed the evening alone, in much melancholy contemplation. Allworthy was sufficiently offended by this transgression of Jones, for notwithstanding the assertions of Mr. Weston, it is certain this worthy man had never indulged himself in any loose pleasures with women, and greatly condemned the vice of incontinence in others. Indeed, there is much reason to imagine that there was not the least truth in what Mr. Weston affirmed, especially as he laid the scene of those impurities at the university where Mr. Allworthy had never been. In fact, the good squire was a little too apt to indulge that kind of pleasantry which is generally called rodomontade, but which may, with as much propriety, be expressed by a much shorter word, and perhaps we too often supply the use of this little monosyllable by others, since very much of what frequently passes in the world for wit and humour should, in the strictest purity of language, receive that short appellation, which, in conformity to the well-bred laws of custom, I here suppress. But whatever detestation Mr. Allworthy had to this or to any other vice, he was not so blinded by it that he could discern any virtue in the guilty person, as clearly indeed as if there had been no mixture of vice in the same character. While he was angry, therefore, with the incontinence of Jones, he was no less pleased with the honour and honesty of his self-accusation. He began now to form in his mind the same opinion of this young fellow which, we hope, our reader may have conceived, and, in balancing his faults with his perfections, the latter seemed rather to preponderate. It was to no purpose, therefore, that Thwackham, who was immediately charged by Mr. Bliffle with the story, unbended all his rancour against poor Tom. Allworthy gave a patient hearing to their invectives, and then answered coldly, that young men of Tom's complexion were too generally addicted to this vice, but he believed that youth was sincerely affected with what he had said to him on the occasion, and he hoped he would not transgress again. So that, as the days of whipping were at an end, the tutor had no other vent but his own mouth for his gall, the usual poor resource of impotent revenge. But Square, who was a less violent, was a much more artful man, and as he hated Jones perhaps more than Thwackham himself did, so he contrived to do him more mischief in the mind of Mr. Allworthy. The reader must remember the several little incidents of the partridge, the horse, and the Bible, which were recounted in the second book, by all which Jones had rather improved than injured the affection which Mr. Allworthy was inclined to entertain for him. The same, I believe, must have happened to him with every other person who hath any idea of friendship, generosity, and greatness of spirit, that is to say, who hath any traces of goodness in his mind. Square himself was not unacquainted with the true impression which those several instances of goodness had made on the excellent heart of Allworthy, for the philosopher very well knew what virtue was, though he was not always perhaps steady in its pursuit. But as for Thwackham, who, from what reason I will not determine, no such thoughts ever entered into his head. He saw Jones in a bad light, and he imagined Allworthy saw him in the same, 
but that he was resolved from pride and stubbornness of spirit not to give up the boy whom he had once cherished, since by so doing he must tacitly acknowledge that his former opinion of him had been wrong. Square therefore embraced this opportunity of injuring Jones in the tenderest part, by giving a very bad turn to all these before-mentioned occurrences. "'I am sorry, sir,' said he, "'to own I have been deceived as well as yourself. I could not, I confess, help being pleased with what I ascribed to the motive of friendship. Though it was carried to an excess, and all excess is faulty and vicious, but in this I made allowance for youth. Little did I suspect that the sacrifice of truth, which we both imagined to have been made to friendship, was in reality a prostitution of it to a depraved and debauched appetite. You now plainly see whence all the seeming generosity of this young man to the family of the gamekeeper proceeded. He supported the father in order to corrupt the daughter, and preserved the family from starving to bring one of them to shame and ruin. This is friendship, this is generosity. As Sir Richard Steele says, gluttons who give high prices for delicacies are very worthy to be called generous. In short, I am resolved from this instance never to give way to the weakness of human nature more, nor to think anything virtue with, doth not exactly quadrate with an erring rule of right. The goodness of Allworthy had prevented these considerations from occurring to himself. Yet were they too plausible to be absolutely and hastily rejected, when laid before his eyes by another. Indeed, what Square had said sunk very deeply into his mind, and the uneasiness which it created was very visible to the other, though the good man would not acknowledge this, but made a very slight answer, and forcibly drove off the discourse to some other subject. It was well, perhaps, for poor Tom, that no such suggestions had been made before he was pardoned, for they certainly stamped in the mind of Allworthy the first bad impression concerning Jones. CHAPTER Twelve. Concerning much clearer matters, but which flowed from the same fountain with those in the preceding chapter. The reader will be pleased, I believe, to return with me to Sophia. She passed the night, after we saw her last, in no very agreeable manner. Sleep befriended her but little, and dreams less. In the morning, when Mrs. Honour, her maid, attended her at the usual hour, she was found already up and dressed. Persons who live two or three miles distance in the country are considered as next-door neighbours, and transactions at the one house fly with incredible celerity to the other. Mrs. Honour, therefore, had heard the whole story of Molly's shame, which she, being of a very communicative temper, had no sooner entered the apartment of her mistress than she began to relate in the following manner. "'La, ma'am, what doth your ladyship think? The girl that your ladyship saw at church on Sunday, whom you thought so handsome, though you would not have thought her so handsome neither, if you had seen her from nearer, but to be sure she hath been carried before the justice for being big with child. She seemed to me to look a confident slut, and to be sure she hath laid the child to young Mr. Jones. And all the parish says Mr. Allworthy is so angry with young Jones that you won't see him. To be sure, one can't help pitying the poor young man, and yet he doth not deserve much pity neither for demeaning himself with such kind of trumpery. Yes, he is so pretty a gentleman, I should be sorry to have him turned out of doors. I dares to swear the wench was as willing as he, for she was always a forward kind of body, and when wenches are so coming, young men are not to be blamed neither, for to be sure they do no more than what is natural. Indeed, it is beneath them to meddle with such dirty draggle tails, and whatever happens to him is good enough for him. And yet, to be sure, the vile baggages are most in fault. I wishes with all my heart they were well to be whipped at the cart's tail, 
for it is a pity they should be the ruin of a pretty young gentleman, and nobody can deny but that Mr. Jones is one of the handsomest young men that ever. She was running on thus when Sophia, with a more peevish voice than she had ever spoken to her in before, cried, Prithee, why dost thou trouble me with all this stuff? What concern have I in what Mr. Jones doth? I suppose you are all alike, and you seem to me to be angry it was not your own case. Aye, ma'am, answered Mrs. Honour, I am sorry your ladyship should have such an opinion of me. I am sure nobody can say any such thing of me. All the young fellows in the world may go to the devil for me, because I said he was a handsome man. Everyone says it as well as I. To be sure, I never thought it was any harm to say a young man was handsome, but to be sure I shall never think him so any more now, for handsome is that handsome does. A beggar wench. Stop thy torrent of impertinence, cries Sophia, and see whether my father wants me at breakfast. Mrs. Honour then flung out of the room, muttering much to herself, of which, Mary, come up, I assure you, was all that could plainly be distinguished. Whether Mrs. Honour really deserved that suspicion of which her mistress gave her a hint, is a matter which we cannot indulge our reader's curiosity by resolving. We will, however, make him amends in disclosing what passed in the mind of Sophia. The reader will be pleased to recollect that a secret affection for Mr. Jones had insensibly stolen into the bosom of this young lady that it had there grown to a pretty great height, before she herself had discovered it. When she first began to perceive its symptoms, the sensations were so sweet and pleasing, that she had not resolution sufficient to check or repel them, and thus she went on cherishing a passion of which she never once considered the consequences. This incident relating to Molly first opened her eyes. She now first perceived the weakness of which she had been guilty, and though it caused the utmost perturbation in her mind, Yet it had the effect of other nauseous physic, and for the time expelled her distemper. Its operation, indeed, was most wonderfully quick, and in the short interval, while her maid was absent, so entirely removed all her symptoms, that when Mrs. Honour returned with a summons from her father, she was become perfectly easy, and had brought herself to a thorough indifference for Mr. Jones. The diseases of the mind do, in almost every particular, imitate those of the body, for which reason we hope that learned faculty, for whom we have so profound a respect, will pardon us the violent hands we have been necessitated to lay on several words and phrases, which of right belong to them, and without which our descriptions must have been often unintelligible. Now, there is no one circumstance in which the distempers of the mind bear a more exact analogy to those which are called bodily than that aptness which both have to a relapse. This is plain in the violent diseases of ambition and avarice. I have known ambition, when cured at court by frequent disappointments, which are the only physic for it, to break out again in a contest for foreman of the grand jury at an assizes, and have heard of a man who had so far conquered avarice as to give away many a sixpence that comforted himself at last on his deathbed by making a crafty and advantageous bargain concerning his ensuing funeral with an undertaker who had married his only child. To the affair of love, which out of strict conformity with the Stoic philosophy we shall here treat as a disease, this proneness to relapse is no less conspicuous. Thus it happened to poor Sophia, upon whom, the very next time she saw young Jones, all the former symptoms returned, and from that time cold and hot fits alternately seized her heart. The situation of this young lady was now very different from what it had ever been before. That passion which had formerly been so exquisitely delicious, became now a scorpion in her bosom. She resisted it, therefore, with her utmost force, and summoned every argument her reason, 
which was surprisingly strong for her age, could suggest, to subdue and expel it. In this she so far succeeded, that she began to hope from time and absence a perfect cure. She resolved, therefore, to avoid Tom Jones as much as possible, for which purpose she began to conceive a design of visiting her aunt, to which she made no doubt of obtaining her father's consent. But Fortune, who had other designs in her head, put an immediate stop to any such proceeding, by introducing an accident, which will be related in the next chapter. Chapter 13. A dreadful accident which befell Sophia, the gallant behaviour of Jones, and the more dreadful consequence of that behaviour to the young lady, with a short digression in favour of the female sex. Mr. Weston grew every day fonder and fonder of Sophia, insomuch that his beloved dogs themselves almost gave place to her in his affections. But as he could not prevail on himself to abandon these, he contrived very cunningly to enjoy their company, together with that of his daughter, by insisting on her riding a hunting with him. Sophia, to whom her father's word was a law, readily complied with his desires, though she had not the least delight in a sport which was of too rough and masculine nature to suit with her disposition. She had, however, another motive beside her obedience to accompany the old gentleman in the chase, for by her presence she hoped in some measure to restrain his impetuosity, and to prevent him from so frequently exposing his neck to the utmost hazard. The strongest objection was that which would have formerly been an inducement to her, namely the frequent meeting with young Jones, whom she had determined to avoid. But as the end of the hunting season now approached, she hoped by a short absence with her aunt to reason herself entirely out of her unfortunate passion, and had not any doubt of being able to meet him in the field the subsequent season without the least danger. On the second day of her hunting, as she was returning from the chase, and was arrived within a little distance from Mr. Weston's house, her horse, whose mettlesome spirit required a better rider, fell suddenly to prancing and capering in such a manner that she was in the most imminent peril of falling. Tom Jones, who was at a little distance behind, saw this, and immediately galloped up to her assistance. As soon as he came up, he leapt from his own horse, and caught hold of hers by the bridle. The unruly beast presently reared himself an end on his hind legs, and threw his lovely burthen from his back, and Tom Jones caught her in his arms. She was so affected with the fright that she was not immediately able to satisfy Jones, who was very solicitous to know whether she had received any hurt. She soon after, however, recovered her spirits, assured him she was safe, and thanked him for the care he had taken of her. Jones answered, "'If I have preserved you, madam, I am sufficiently repaid, for I promise you I would have secured you from the least harm at the expense of a much greater misfortune to myself than I have suffered on this occasion.' "'What misfortune?' replied Sophia eagerly. "'I hope you have come to no mischief.' "'Be not concerned, madam,' answered Jones. Heaven be praised you have escaped so well, considering the danger you was in. If I have broke my arm, I consider it as a trifle, in comparison of what I feared upon your account. Sophia then screamed out, Broke your arm, heaven forbid! I am afraid I have, madam, says Jones, but I beg you will suffer me first to take care of you. I have a right hand yet at your service to help you into the next field, whence we have but a very little walk to your father's house. Sophia, seeing his left arm dangling by his side, while he was using the other to lead her, no longer doubted of the truth. She now grew much paler than her fears for herself had made her before. All her limbs were seized with a trembling, insomuch that Jones could scarce support her, and as her thoughts were in no less agitation, 
she could not refrain from giving Jones a look so full of tenderness, that it almost argued a stronger sensation in her mind than even gratitude and pity united can raise in the gentlest female bosom, without the assistance of a third, more powerful passion. Mr. Weston, who was advanced at some distance when this accident happened, was now returned, as were the rest of the horsemen. Sophia immediately acquainted them with what had befallen Jones, and begged them to take care of him, upon which Weston, who had been much alarmed by meeting his daughter's horse without its rider, was now overjoyed to find her unhurt, cried out, "'I am glad it is no worse. If Tom hath broken his arm, we will get a joiner to mend it again.' The squire alighted from his horse, and proceeded to his house on foot, with his daughter and Jones. An impartial spectator, who had met them on the way, would, on viewing their several countenances, have concluded Sophia alone to have been the object of compassion, for as to Jones, he exulted in having probably saved the life of the young lady, at the price only of a broken bone, and Mr. Weston, though he was not unconcerned at the accident which had befallen Jones, was, however, delighted in a much higher degree with the fortunate escape of his daughter. The generosity of Sophia's temper construed this behaviour of Jones into great bravery, and it made a deep impression on her heart, for certain it is that there is no one quality which so generally recommends men to woman as this. Proceeding if we believe the common opinion from that natural timidity of the sex, which is, says Mr. Osborne, so great that a woman is the most cowardly of all the creatures God ever made, a sentiment more remarkable for its bluntness than for its truth. Aristotle in his politics doth them, I believe, more justice when he says, The modesty and fortitude of men differ from those virtues in women, for the fortitude which becomes a woman would be cowardice in a man, and the modesty which becomes a man would be pertness in a woman. Nor is there, perhaps, more of truth in the opinion of those who derive the partiality which women are inclined to show to the brave, from this excess of their fear. Mr. Bale, I think in his article of Helen, imputes this, and with greater probability, to their violent love of glory, for the truth of which we have the authority of him, who of all others saw farthest into human nature, and who introduces the heroine of his odyssey, the great pattern of matrimonial love and constancy, assigning the glory of her husband as the only source of her affection towards him. The English reader will not find this in the poem, for the sentiment is entirely left out in the translation. However this be, certain it is that the accident operated very strongly on Sophia, and, indeed, after much inquiry into the matter, I am inclined to believe that, at this very time, the charming Sophia made no less impression on the heart of Jones, to say truth, he had for some time become sensible of the irresistible power of her charms. Chapter 14. The Arrival of a Surgeon. His Operations and a Long Dialogue between Sophia and her Maid. When they arrived at Mr. Weston's hall, Sophia, who had tottered along with much difficulty, sunk down in her chair, but by the assistance of hartshorn and water she was prevented from fainting away, and had pretty well recovered her spirits, when the surgeon who was sent for to Jones appeared. Mr. Weston, who imputed these symptoms in his daughter to her fall, advised her to be presently blooded by way of prevention. In this opinion he was seconded by the surgeon, who gave so many reasons for bleeding, and quoted so many cases where persons had miscarried for want of it, that the squire became very importunate, and indeed insisted peremptorily that his daughter should be blooded. Sophia soon yielded to the commands of her father, though entirely contrary to her own inclinations, for she suspected, I believe, less danger from the fright than either the squire or the surgeon. She then stretched out her beautiful arm, and the operator began to prepare for his work. 
While the servants were busied in providing materials, the surgeon, who imputed the backwardness which had appeared in Sophia to her fears, began to comfort her with assurances that there was not the least danger, for no accident, he said, could ever happen in bleeding, but from the monstrous ignorance of pretenders to surgery, which, he pretty plainly insinuated, he was not at present to be apprehended. Sophia declared she was not under the least apprehension, adding, "'If you open an artery, I promise you I'll forgive you.' "'Will you?' cries Weston. "'Damn me, if I will. If he does thee the least mischief, damn me if I don't have the heart blood out.' The surgeon assented to bleed her upon these conditions, which then proceeded to his operation, which he performed with as much dexterity as he had promised, and with as much quickness, for he took but little blood from her, saying it was much safer to bleed again and again than to take away too much at once. Sophia, when her arm was bound up, retired, for she was not willing, nor was it perhaps strictly decent, to be present at the operation on Jones. Indeed, one objection which she had to bleeding, though she did not make it, was the delay which it would occasion to setting the broken bone. For Weston, when Sophia was concerned, had no consideration but for her, and as for Jones himself, he sat like patience on a monument smiling at grief. To say the truth, when he saw the blood springing from the lovely arm of Sophia, he scarce thought of what had happened to himself. The surgeon now ordered his patient to be stripped to his shirt, and then entirely bearing the arm he began to stretch and examine it, in such a manner that the tortures he put upon him to cause Jones to make several wry faces, which the surgeon observing greatly wondered at, crying, "'What is the matter, sir? I am sure it is impossible I should hurt you.' And then holding forth the broken arm, he began a long and very learned lecture of anatomy, in which simple and double fractures were most accurately considered, and the several ways in which Jones might have broken his arm were discussed, with proper annotations, showing how many of these would have been better, and how many worse, than the present case. Having at length finished his laboured harangue, with which the audience, though it had greatly raised their attention and admiration, were not much edified, as they really understood not a single syllable of all he had said, he proceeded to business, which he was more expeditious in finishing than he had been in beginning. Jones was then ordered into a bed, which Mr. Weston compelled him to accept at his own house, and sentence of water gruel was passed upon him. Among the good company which had attended in the hall during bone-setting, Mrs. Honour was one, who, being summoned to her mistress as soon as it was over, and asked by her how the young gentleman did, presently launched into extravagant praises on the magnanimity, as she called it, of his behaviour, which, she said, was so charming and so pretty a creature. She then burst forth into much warmer encomiums on the beauty of his person, enumerating many particulars, and ending with the whiteness of his skin. This discourse had an effect on Sophia's countenance, which would not, perhaps, have escaped the observance of the sagacious waiting-woman, had she once looked her mistress in the face, all the time she was speaking. But, as a looking-glass, which was most commodiously placed opposite to her, gave her an opportunity of surveying those features in which, of all others, she took most delight. So she had not once removed her eyes from that amiable object during her whole speech. Mrs. Honour was so entirely wrapped up in the subject on which she exercised her tongue, and the object before her eyes, that she gave her mistress time to conquer her confusion, which, having done, she smiled on her maid, and told her, she was certainly in love with this young fellow. "'I in love, madam,' answers she. "'Upon my word, ma'am, I assure you, ma'am, upon my soul, ma'am, I am not.' "'Why, if you was,' cried her mistress, "'I see no reason that you should be ashamed of it, for he is certainly a pretty fellow.' "'Yes, ma'am,' answered the other. "'That he is, the most handsomest man I ever saw in my life. 
Yes, to be sure that he is. And as your ladyship says, I don't know why I should be ashamed of loving him, though he is my betters. To be sure, gentlefolks are but flesh and blood no more than us servants. Besides, as for Mr. Jones, thus Squire Allworthy had made him a gentleman of him, he was not so good as myself by birth. For thof I am a poor body, I am an honest person's child, and my father and mother were married, which is more than some people can say, as I as they hold their heads. Marry, come up, I assure you, my dirty cousin, thof his skin be so white, and to be sure it is the most whitest that ever was seen. I am a Christian as well as he, and nobody can say that I am base-born. My grandfather was a clergyman." This is the second person of low condition whom we have recorded in this history to have sprung from the clergy. It is to be hoped such instances will, in future ages, when some provision is made for the families of the inferior clergy, appear stranger than they can be thought at present. And would have been very angry, I believe, to have thought any of his family should have taken up with Molly Seagram's dirty leavings. Perhaps Sophia might have suffered her maid to run on in this manner, from wanting sufficient spirits to stop her tongue, which the reader may probably conjecture was no very easy task, for certainly there were some passages in her speech which were far from being agreeable to the lady. However, she now checked the torrent, as there seemed no end of its flowing. "'I wonder,' says she, "'at your assurance in daring to talk thus of one of my father's friends. As to the wench, I order you never to mention her name to me, and with regard to the young gentleman's birth, those who can say nothing more to his disadvantage may as well be silent on that head, as I desire you will be for the future. "'I am sorry I have offended your ladyship,' answered Mrs. Honour. "'I am sure I ate Molly Seagram as much as your ladyship can, and as for abusing Squire Jones, I can call all the servants in the house to witness that whenever any talk hath been about bastards, I would always take in his part. For which of you,' says I to the footman, "'would not be a bastard, if he could, to be made a gentleman of?' And says I, I am sure he is a very fine gentleman, and he hath one of the whitest hands in the world, for to be sure so he hath. And, says I, one of the sweetest temperedest, best naturedest man in the world he is. And, says I, all the servants and neighbours all around the country loves him. And, to be sure, I could tell your ladyship something, but I am afraid it would offend you. What could you tell me, Honour? says Sophia. Nay, ma'am, to be sure he meant nothing by it, therefore I would not have your ladyship be offended. Prithee tell me says Sophia. I will know it to this instant. Why, ma'am, answered Mrs. Honour, he came into the room one day last week when I was at work, and there lay your ladyship's muff on a chair, and to be sure he put his hands on it, that very muff your ladyship gave me but yesterday. La, says I, Mr. Jones, you will stretch my lady's muff and spoil it. But he still kept his hands in it, and then he kissed it. To be sure, I hardly saw such a kiss in my life as he gave it. "'I suppose he did not know it was mine,' replied Sophia. "'Your ladyship shall hear, ma'am. "'He kissed it again and again, and said it was the prettiest muff in the world. "'La, sir,' says I, "'you can have seen it a hundred times.' "'Yes, Mrs. Honour,' cried he, "'but who can see anything beautiful in the presence of your lady but herself?' "'Nay, that's not all, neither. "'Well, I hope your ladyship won't be offended, for to be sure he meant nothing.' "'One day, as your ladyship was playing on the harpsichord to my master,' Mr. Jones was sitting in the next room, and methought he looked melancholy. La, says I, Mr. Jones, what's the matter? A penny for your thoughts, says I. Why, I see, he says, starting up from a dream, what can I be thinking of, when that angel your mistress is playing? And then squeezing me by the hand, Oh, Mrs. Honour, says he, how happy will that man be? And then he sighed, Upon my troth his breath is as sweet as a nosegay. But to be sure he meant no harm by it. "'so I hope your ladyship will not mention a word, "'for he gave me a crown never to mention it, "'and made me swear upon a book, I believe. 
Indeed, it was not the Bible. Till something of a more beautiful red than vermilion can be found, I shall say nothing of Sophia's colour on this occasion. Honour, says she, I, if you will not mention this any more to me, nor to anybody else, I will not betray you. I mean I will not be angry, but I am afraid of your tongue. Why, my girl, will you give it such liberties? Nay, ma'am, answered she, to be sure I would sooner cut out my tongue than offend your ladyship. To be sure I shall never mention a word that your ladyship would not have me. Why, I would not have you mention this any more, said Sophia, for it may come to my father's ears, and he would be angry with Mr. Jones, though I really believe, as you say, he meant nothing. I should be very angry myself if I imagined. Nay, ma'am, says Honour, I protest I believe he meant nothing. I thought he talked as if he was out of his senses. Nay, he said he believed he was beside himself when he had spoken the words. Ay, sir, says I, I believe so too. Yes, says he, Honour, but I ask your ladyship's pardon. I could tear my tongue out for offending you. Go on, says Sophia. You may mention anything you have not told me before. Yes, Honour, says he. This was some time afterwards, when he gave me the crown. I am neither such a coxcomb or such a villain as to think of her in any other delight but as my goddess. As such I will always worship and adore her while I have breath. This was all, ma'am, I will be sworn to the best of my remembrance. I was in a passion with him myself till I found he meant no harm. Indeed, Honour, says Sophia, I believe you have a real affection for me. I was provoked the other day when I gave you warning, but if you have a desire to stay with me, you shall. To be sure, ma'am, answered Mrs. Honour, I shall never desire to part with your ladyship. To be sure, I almost cried my eyes out when you gave me warning. It would be very ungrateful in me to desire to leave your ladyship, because as why I should never get so good a place again. I am sure I would live and die with your ladyship, for, as poor Mr. Jones said, happy is the man. Here the dinner-bell interrupted a conversation which had wrought such an effect on Sophia that she was, perhaps, more obliged to her bleeding in the morning than she at the time had apprehended she should be. As to the present situation of her mind, I shall adhere to a rule of Horace by not attempting to describe it, from despair of success. Most of my readers will suggest it easily to themselves, and the few who cannot would not understand the picture, or at least would deny it to be natural, if ever so well drawn. End of Book 4 and Section 14 of Tom Jones